Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Welcome back everyone. Hello Maverick family and new viewers. The world is watching. And there's a lot to see tonight. We are going to talk about the filibuster ongoing in the House of Commons, where the conservatives in Canada, in opposition, are opposing Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. So that's still going on. They generated over 20,000 amendments using artificial intelligence. Amendments that have to be voted on, many of them discarded, but the debate still rages. It's a filibuster. It's a Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment in Ottawa. And it is still, the drama is still unfolding tonight. So we'll update you on that. We will also talk about... Political change. A lot of people talking about the need to reform the political system, to completely change it. I don't hear too many people coming up with real solutions. If they do have solutions, in most cases, they're not really telling you what they really have planned. Everybody seems to want to tear it down. But tonight, there are a couple of organizations out there that have put forth ideas. They seem to have a plan, but I have real concerns. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why during this broadcast. Also, we've got our eyes still on that house explosion in Arlington, some kind of weird stuff going on there. And because of all that sort of weird stuff going on there, some people, it's, it's just led people to send me other weird stuff over the last number of days. Including, you know, people saying they're, you know, this Joe Biden isn't the real Joe Biden. And this is this is not the real Justin Trudeau. And there's a fake one and there's more than one. And there's and even Christopher Reeve, Superman, still alive. So tonight... I'm going to address those questions. Head on. Together, we will use science and technology to determine if these concerns are true or if we are being lied to. So we'll touch on that tonight as well. And what else do I have? We're going to... We're going to drill down and 
you know, it'll be a teachable moment tonight, I think. All the way around to Ontario. Men accused of belonging to a neo-Nazi terrorism group tonight as well. As well. So there's that. And we'll tie that into... We'll tie that into uh, all the other stuff we're talking about tonight. So stay with me. And when we come back, Joe Biden delivers remarks on investing in America. All that and a whole lot more coming up on the other side of this. Okay, I'm back and Joe Biden is in Las Vegas right now and he's delivering remarks on how his investing in America agenda is advancing his vision for world-class infrastructure across the country. So we'll... We'll go there at least for a moment and we'll see what uh, this Joe Biden <laughs> has to say about that. Here we go. Oh, he's going to gallop up to the podium. Here he goes. Which way am I going? Where am I? What day is it? Please take a seat if you have one. If you don't, you can build one real quickly. Pull up a chair and sit on the floor. I'll tell you what. You know, I was thinking back there when Cesar was speaking that, uh, you know, uh, it's been a while. Harry Reid, I told you 35 years ago to get this sucker done. We're getting it done. You think I'm joking? I've ridden on rail probably more than all of you combined. Oh, really? I got to tell you, it's going to make this longer. I apologize. It's a real, real quick story. I was, uh, as well, I was vice president. He's there and talking the about developing the in the world, but they don't like rail projects. He's going to invest $8.2 billion along the way. And so, uh, but I was going home to see my mom. Ten, I was catching a ten major projects across the country. Day, a seven o'clock train out of Washington. I live 150 miles from from Washington, and and I took the train every single day because my wife and daughter were killed. I started going home to see my kid anyway. Make a long story not so quite so long. And uh, I was getting on the train, and uh, one of the senior guys in Amtrak. I became friends with all of them after all the years. And uh, I'd ridden 36 years as a senator, and he comes up to me. His name is Angelo, and he comes over and he says, "Joey, baby!" He grabs my cheek and says, "I thought they're going to shoot him." And uh, 
I said, Ed, what's the matter? He said, we just said, I just read in the newspaper. Because they keep meticulous mileage, how many times you, how many miles you use an uh, aircraft in for the United States Air Force as vice president. I just read in the paper, Joe, you traveled 1,000, excuse me, 1,200,000 miles in Air Force. He said, big, I won't quote him exactly. He said, big deal, Joey. He said, we just had a retirement dinner in Newark, New Jersey. He said, just had a retirement dinner. You know how many miles you've ridden? I said, no. Well, he's, he's, well, he's going blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you that uh, as part of this, there's going to be an electric rail line. It'll be the country's first high-speed route. It's planned to go from California's Central Valley and go all the way to San Francisco and then on to Los Angeles. The trains will reach speeds of up to 220 miles per hour, 354 kilometers per hour. But, of course, that's just one of 10 projects across the country. Nevada, Las Vegas. Three people killed, a fourth now and hospitalized. I'm grateful the law enforcement officers risked their lives in the safety of shooting spree. You saved lives. You marked in and saved lives. We joined the people across the country, praying for the families of those killed, whose hearts have been broken by yet another horrific gun violence. Look, I own a couple shotguns. I, 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 I haven't shot them in a while because I used to usually just make target practice, skeet shooting. But you know, the idea that we, the way we deal with guns, as students and educators experience this trauma of the shooting that, you said that took place, Las Vegas, Las Vegas already, they've already had real difficulty. So much gun violence, 2017 shooting, still in the minds of so many people. I was out here meeting with the families. Folks, we got to get smart. There have been over 600 mass shootings in America this year alone, plus daily acts of gun violence that don't even make the national news. This is not normal, and we can never let it become normal. People have the right to feel safe, be safe, and I'm fighting to make sure they do. But all these actions I've taken as president of the United States to end this gun violence epidemic is not enough. We need Congress to step up. The idea, if you were driving your automobile here and you left in the key in the, in the parking lot, you left the key in the ignition, and the kid came up and jumped in and stole it, and they got in a crash, you're liable civilly. Why in God's name do people not have to lock up their firearms? Why is that not a requirement? All these mass murders, not not this weekend, but have been because people have picked up kids have grabbed stuff off of counters, off of their... Uh, anyway, I don't want to get... I get I'm getting confused and I have to we stop talking. We need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity yeah. magazines. Pass national red flag laws, as you've done here. Require safe storage and act universal background checks. Another common sense measure to save lives. Because, you know, the Second Amendment didn't say you can own any gun, you can own any weapon. You couldn't own a cannon when you were, when the Second Amendment was passed. You couldn't. Anyway, don't get me started. But look, I'm not going to rest the we do all we can to prevent more families and more communities from being torn apart by gun violence. <clears throat> now, for the reason I came, I came to thank the Carpenters and your president, Doug McCarran, who's been a friend of mine for a long time. But well... Stand up. Doug does what he says. He never backs down and he always knows what to do. God love you, Doug. I'm, you're a great friend.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Look, folks. And, uh, you know, I was telling Doug, the first uh, union ever introduced me were those carpenters from Newcastle, Delaware, a town of 370 years old in the Delaware River. His name was McCullough. And he was a crotchety old son of a gun. And I was, I was running for the Senate as a 29-year-old kid. I come from a very modest family. Uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I was running. And I, if I got elected, which I did, I was going to be 17 days too young to be sworn in. I had to wait a little bit. And McCullough looked at me and said, I'm going to endorse you, Biden. You understand what we're doing, but damn, boy, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> You're awful young. You're not even old enough to be president, old enough to be senator. You guys have been with me from the very beginning. And I want to thank Governor Lombardo and members of the Nevada's outstanding congressional delegation. Jackie Rosen is a friend, and, and Catherine Mastow, Cortez Mastow, Every, all but the guy she's married to is pretty good. <laughs> Former Secret Service. And Dana Titus and Representative okay. Susie okay. Lee and Stephen Horsford, who's chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. The relentless work for the people of Nevada brought this historic project home to your great state. I also want to thank our partners from the private sector, Wes and the whole team at Brightline supporting this project. It's a big deal. There you go. And I mean, big deal. It's a lot of money, a lot of involvement. My investing in America agenda has now surpassed over attracting $628 billion in private and private investment from all over the world of manufacturing clean energy here at home, just since we took office about two and a half, three years ago. What's happening here in Nevada is another great example. A special thanks to my friend, Governor Sisolak. I don't know where the gov is, but he, he knew me, he heard me, he had to hear me talk about this for a long time, back when he was governor. And finally, I want to thank a special member of my team, Mitch Landu. Now, Mitch is from New Orleans. That's New Orleans in English. Okay, you got the idea. That's enough of him. It's painful. You notice how when he speaks, he, he gets partway through his sentence and then says half a word, chops half a word off and then moves on to his next thought without completing the thought that he was engaged in. It is painful to listen to him. Ah, he's so scattered. Uh, wow. Anyway, investing in America, 8.2 billion. They need a lot of private sector investment in these projects as well and it's coming but uh another public-private partnership is what you're looking at there folks now let's take another quick break and then when we come back we'll start digging into some of the other news of the day and then we're gonna we're gonna talk about political reform, the dangers associated with that, in my view, and are we being lied to? Well, I think the answer you already have. The question is, who's doing the lying?
Greetings brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out. Of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. Individuals. Defenders of individual rights. And freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate. At freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. What are we going to move on to here now? How about the 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 great filibuster in Canada tonight? Where are my notes on that? I have so many things up again tonight. When we get into the beginning of each broadcast, it's difficult to keep everything straight while I'm still producing. But I'll get you the info here. So no signs tonight that uh, this thing in, uh, in Ottawa is going to come to an end anytime real soon. What we have on our hands here is a marathon voting session in the House of Commons that has now stretched into its second day after members of parliament remained up all through the night. Rejecting conservative efforts to put an end to, to stamp out Justin Trudeau's carbon tax plan. So it started at around 6 p.m. last night, and they went through a whole bunch of these um, votes on this issue. Uh, the conservatives used artificial intelligence to generate 20-some thousand amendments to Trudeau's legislation, or proposed tax plan. And now they're going through the motions of uh, disposing of each of these amendments. And it's taking a long time. So you have a couple of different uh, points of view on this. Let me just uh, bring up the scrum that occurred earlier today when... Uh, Yeah, there was a scrum earlier today where they met with reporters outside the house to kind of give us an update. So this is not like right current, but this is the most current stuff we have available at the moment. It's a number of hours old, of course, from earlier today, but uh, it gives you a handle on where we're at with all of this because it's still 
it's still doing this. It's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. Here's Andrew Shear, the former leader. We are just about halfway through this Axe the Carbon Tax voting marathon. And uh, it's, it's a little bit after 10 o'clock, so we have successfully killed a day of government business. This is one less day that Justin Trudeau will have to implement his destructive agenda that is dividing Canadians and driving up prices, and of course his plan to quadruple the carbon tax. That's what this is all about. The carbon tax is really hurting Canadian families as we head into the Christmas season. More and more Canadians are experiencing the tragic choice of heating their homes or putting food on their tables. And a recent food price report has indicated that next year families are gonna to have to pay another $700 for groceries. And that's on top of all the higher prices that Justin Trudeau's inflationary deficits and of course his carbon tax have caused. So that's what this fight is all about. And Justin Trudeau can end it all. He can stop this right now. If he chooses to listen to Canadians, ax the tax off of farmers, families, and First Nations. There is no question that the carbon tax is a big reason for grocery store price increases. And only Conservatives are fighting to take the tax off the farmers who grow the food, the truckers who transport the food, so that Canadians can afford a better Christmas meal. And I'm happy to take your questions about so you're halfway through this process. Do you see things the like, uh, like the Montreal Holocaust Museum and uh, Canada's NATO mission. Why did you vote against this? We're things? voting against Justin Trudeau's economic agenda, the same agenda that has caused record high inflations, mass record high inflation and massive and rapid interest rate hikes. We are voting against the budget. We're just doing it a little bit of a different way this time to highlight the fact that Justin Trudeau is going to radically increase the carbon tax and we are going to keep doing this until he listens to Canadians and access the tax. Are you going to go all night? You mentioned that you mentioned you mentioned that you lost a day already. So are you willing to just go home now or are you going to allow, uh, go through all the votes? We're going to we are going to keep doing this. The the purpose of this as you heard our leader Pierre Polyev say the other day was to to do everything we can to hold up Justin Trudeau's destructive agenda. And if he wants to get out of Ottawa, get out of town early, he's going to have to listen to us and take the tax off. I'm just going to, je vais donner la parole à ma collègue pour, I'm going to give the, the microphone to my colleague so he can deliver some remarks in French and I'm happy to take some more questions after that. Okay. So now you know what's going on there. And then, you know, to be fair, Let's listen to what Justin Trudeau had to say. He was approached by reporters in the hallway today. And this is what that went down like. This is, well, here's Do you have any intention on axing the carbon tax like the Conservatives want? Are you going to back down? No, we're not axing the tax. Well, there you go. Thank you for that. No, we're not going to ax the tax. We're going to tax you up the wazoo. That's what we're going to do because that's what we always do. We are the liberals. You want to know what it looks like in the house? Well, I have this. Are you ready? This is... This is what she looked like. Here we go. Mr. Kimmich. Mr. Perkins. Mr. Perkins. Mrs. Stubbs. 
Mrs. Stubbs. Mr. Shear. Mr. Shear. Mr. Halan. Mr. Halan. Mrs. Gray. Mrs. Gray. Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore. Mr. Kelly. Mr. Kelly. Mr. Jennis. Mr. Jennis. Mr. Small. Mr. Small. Mr. Bazan. Mr. Bazan. Mr. Richards. Mr. Richards. Mr. Bertha. Mr. Bertha. Ms. Finley. Ms. Finley. Mr. Chong. Mr. Chong. Mr. Abuntayef. Mr. Abuntayef. Mr. Seabach. Mr. Seabach. Mr. Viss. Mr. Viss. Mr. Doherty. Mr. Doherty. Mr. Goodday. Mr. Goodday. Mr. Tucker. Mr. Tucker. Mrs. Grant Nyman. Mrs. Grant Nyman. Mr. Zimmer. Mr. Zimmer. Mr. Patzer. Mr. Patzer. Mr. Law. Mr. Law. Mr. Kitchen. Mr. Kitchen. Mr. Muse. Mr. Muse. Mr. Redekop. Mr. Redekop. Mr. Van Popta. Mr. Van Popta. Mr. Waugh. Mr. Waugh. Mr. Calkins. Mr. Calkins. Mr. Lou. Mr. Lou. Mr. Genereux. Mr. Genereux. Mr. General. Mr. Genereux. Mr. Martel. Mr. Martel. Mr. Couric. Correct. Mrs. Gallen. Mrs. Gallen. Mr. Caputo. Mr. Caputo. Mr. Vidal. Mr. Vidal. Mr. Dreeshen. Mr. Dreeshen. Mr. Tolmy. Mr. Tolmy. Mrs. Wagenthal. Mrs. Wagenthal. Mr. Nader. Mr. Nader. Mr. Soroka. Mr. Soroka. Mr. McLean. Mr. McLean. Mr. McGuire. Mr. McGuire. Mr. Falk Pavashi. Mr. Falk Pavashi. Anyway, that's what's going on there. Your government did work. But hey, you got to do what you got to do if you're going to stand in opposition to. And that's what they're doing. And I don't know why I'm talking like this. Maybe because uh, I can. And it just seems appropriate. Um, bunch of gangsters. So that's dragging on and dragging on. What else do I have to talk about tonight before we get into this other stuff? Well, I will cover off these other things before we get into these uh, these more in-depth discussions. Uh, <laughs> discussions. You wait and see where this thing takes you takes us tonight. It's uh, I'm I'm kind of laughing because. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna take this right down to the very very basics. Talk about a teachable moment. The uh, the Alberta government, and this is kind of well, we won't touch on that. We'll come back to this, okay? Because I want to use that as a segue into the into the philosophical discussions of political reform. Um, we'll use the Alberta discussion to segue into that. Oh, yeah, in um, <laughs> in other news, a woman tried to burn down the Martin Luther King Jr. birth home in Atlanta with gasoline. Oh, yeah, everything's normal out there. Joe Biden actually, I think, touched on something very relevant for a change. All the mass shootings, you know, it's coming, it's, it's becoming clear to me that the problem is something in people's heads. You have crazy people blowing things up. You have people driving expensive, super expensive, super high luxury cars like a, like a Bentley into a border crossing in Niagara Falls. And then having that car blow up, 
uh, but nothing to see there, folks. That wasn't terrorism or anything. You have, what else do we have? We just have mass shootings in Texas and Nevada. We have people breaking into the home of RFK Jr. We have another guy who was arrested and then released after maybe thinking about doing something like assassinating him, possibly. And he's also, you know, maybe not the most stable psychologically, and he's still out there. Of that, we have all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We've been talking about it. And all these mass shootings, you know, seems to me there's some common denominators there. So this woman, <laughs> Atlanta police, they arrested her. Her name is uh, Lanisha Chantrice Henderson, 26 years old. She was stopped by two tourists from Utah after they saw her pouring gasoline on the property where you will find the birth home of Martin Luther King Jr. She was charged with second degree arson and interfering with government property and then was taken to Grady detention for a psychological evaluation. Later, she'll be transferred to Fulton County Jail. Uh-huh. Another case of someone who maybe is not entirely stable doing some crazy stuff. You know, if I wanted to unleash terror upon a nation without people even realizing I was doing it, and if, if and I'm not, but if I was a really evil dude, or the leader and the evil leader of uh, some foreign country, and I wanted to do real damage to America, I might just screw with people's minds, a lot of people's minds, and then trigger them so that they would go out and do really crazy things, violent things. And have you noticed that we're getting, we're seeing an escalation in these kinds of crazy, unexplainable crimes and it's always like oh it's, it's gun violence it's the guns is it oh, or is it the person holding the guns the people holding the guns using the guns and what's motivating them why and it's why are people driving their cars into border crossings and blowing up their bentleys at over 100 miles per hour why are they blowing up houses? And why are they trying to set Martin Luther King Jr.'s house on fire? What's the motivation behind that? A civil rights leader? Blow up his birth home or set it on fire? Why would someone want to do that? What is it in their head that would prompt them to do it? Why would that guy blow up that house in Arlington just a few, about, what, four miles or so from the Capitol, from the White House? 
And that, that's kind of weird. The weirdness just keeps on a coming. And every day it gets weirder and weirder. And like, there's another one. And there's another shooting. And there's another one. I, that's as far as I can take this, honestly. You know, that guy who uh, blew up the house, he said that we would know the truth by yesterday. I still don't really know what what he what was meant by that. Um, I've had people sending me stuff. I I if the truth is out there, I I don't know. The other weird thing is that some people think he's still alive. Someone has been posting stuff on social media, you know, claiming to be the guy who was supposed to be in the house and was blown up and was dead. But we don't know because the authorities are saying that. He is presumed dead. So there's no proof yet that the remains found inside the home were of, you know, were him. And this guy, James W.U., 56 years old, had a long history of contact with the FBI. He also is divorced isolated at least appears to be had been posting a lot of alarming things online investigators are trying to understand what motivated him is uh he had filed four federal lawsuits between 2018 and 2022, each of them dismissed. Some are described by judges as convoluted and confused and frivolous. That ties into some other sort of key things and trends that I've seen that all kind of tie a lot of these incidents together. And I believe that those lawsuits were aimed at family members, mostly. There was a 2018 lawsuit in New York against his then wife, younger sister, and a hospital where he was committed against his will for obvious reasons. And the judge concluded the allegations were frivolous and the product of delusion or fantasy. What's putting that stuff in this guy's head? What was? Or maybe what still is, if indeed he is still alive. And I'm not saying one way or the other he is or he isn't. But we, I've seen posts online. The, the scary thing about all of that is, one, maybe he is still alive. Two, if he isn't alive, then somebody out there is going to great lengths to make it look like he is. And why is someone doing that? What's the purpose behind all of that? On LinkedIn, you recently posted, it says here, paranoid rants about his neighbors and a former co-worker. He also had been online posting a lot of things about uh, the 9-11 terrorist attack. And police say, the FBI says that they've had contact with him fairly regularly over the last few years. David Sundberg said that of the FBI's Washington field offices, 
office said that you had communicated with the FBI with phone calls, letters, and online tips over a number of years. He said, quote, I would characterize these communications as primarily complaints about alleged frauds he believed were perpetrated against him. The information contained therein and the nature of those communications did not lead to opening any FBI investigations. So then he just, you know, um, ended up in a house about well, within a stone's throw, really, of the White House. <laughs> and <clears throat> and then we end up with this. Because cops are called to the house after getting reports of shots fired, then they evacuate about a dozen homes around it, people from homes around it. They block off the area. Firefighters come in, shut the gas off to the house. They say somebody's inside, repeatedly firing a flare gun, and then the place is blown to kingdom come. Then they have a news conference and say that they think that the guy inside was Mr. You. Only to then the next day see that some guy claiming to be you is online posting, claiming to still be alive, saying that the truth will soon come out. Whatever that truth is. And I've heard on audio recording as well that I'm not going to play with for you here because I can't verify the authenticity of anything on it. And I don't want to contribute to the uh, to the weirdness any more than I'm already contributing to it simply by talking about it. But you see, it is if if all the weirdness is true, that needs to be reported on. And if the weirdness isn't true, then the weirdness is being used to manipulate peer people because it isn't true, and it's being used to lead people around by the nose. Some people. And that also is news because that would, to me, constitute something dealing with some sort of a psyop, which absolutely needs attention, which we know is going on. But if that's the case here, or then we need to draw attention to it because we have a lot of weirdness going on. Unfortunately, what has been going on is this stuff gets ignored because it's weird. And if you talk about it in the mainstream media, you're shunned as though you're weird. When I just talk about this stuff, some people look at me like I'm weird just because I talk about it. It doesn't necessarily mean I believe this or I believe that. I just know that it's going on. And I like to deal in facts. So I try to verify things when people send me information. And the fact is, this information, true or false, is out there. And it is having an impact on some people. And a pretty serious impact. And on a lot of people. Because a lot of people are paying attention to it. So it deserves attention. And I don't know if the authorities are really giving this kind of information as much attention as they should be. They're not giving this enough weight. The mainstream media is not, in my view. 
simply because it is screwing with people's minds, true or untrue. So I think it's time to acknowledge that all of this is going on in a, in a pretty serious way. And we need to make more of an effort all the way around to either verify or debunk. But it's so difficult to debunk or verify because it doesn't matter what you say. This stuff gets so weird that anything you say is discredited one way or the other. And that seems to be the methodology behind a lot of this stuff. It's like all that has to be done is just plant some seeds of doubt. And then that snowballs. And then it's almost impossible. In fact, it may even be impossible to get to the actual truth because even if the truth is revealed, there's so much doubt surrounding any of these kinds of incidents, either current or historical, that people will never accept anything as being the factual truth in the end because there will always be other potential options. Like who is going to believe a single story about this house explosion now? When there are already all these weird things going on. Either you believe that the guy is dead, even if they get DNA evidence, if you don't want to believe it, you'll just say that was fabricated. You see how this whole thing just gets, it spins out of control. And then the truth can never be told. Because not only does the, the lie get its shoes laced up and run around the world before the truth has an opportunity to even get its shoes on or however you want to phrase that. Um, once that, once the, all the lies get going or all the conspiracies or all the doubt, then even then the lie just becomes or the truth just becomes one more narrative. That's the danger of the information uh, war in a digital age, especially when videos, images, people can be created digitally in deep fakes to the point now where you can barely and maybe not even, maybe you can't even tell the difference between what's real and what isn't because of the media that's created, right? Holly, the magic of Hollywood, the magic of AI. We've been talking about this quite a bit this week. And that's because this stuff is weird. Seems to me that this is also happening at a time when a lot of people want real political change. And I think it's pretty clear that a lot of this stuff, if not even all of it, is politically motivated. I think it's dangerous. Very, very dangerous. We need to be aware. We need people to become much more media literate and quickly fast. People need to get up to speed, man. We're also vulnerable right now. Um, and the politics just keeps on getting thicker. Oh, here's another piece, okay? Hollywood, speaking of Hollywood and glitz and glamour and the entertainment business and the mixing of Hollywood with 
through culture and entertainment. Look at this here about uh, Taylor Swift. Matt Wallace says, Taylor Swift is funded by the Soros Empire. I am about to expose everything and end her reputation. Really? Taylor Swift is funded by the Soros Foundation? There she is. Well, Soros is pretty rich, so she's looking pretty good doing it. There's Matt Wallace on X. He's going to expose everything and end her reputation. I talked about her about a month ago, and I pointed out that for a while she was very apolitical. She would not really, well, it was during the, the last election. She wouldn't come out initially and endorse the Democrats and Biden. And uh, she came under fire from the Hollywood elites. And then finally she just caved in and uh, she said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a Democrat. I'm on the left. And now they leave her alone. And now she's got this massive tour, huge money. It's absolutely political. Okay. Before we get into these, these other discussions here, we've got two Ontario men. Here's a mainstream media report about this tonight. Two Ontario men accused of belonging to neo-Nazi terrorism group. This is this one, this version of the story coming from Global News. This is the RCMP, RCMP have charged two Ontario men with knowingly participating in an international neo-Nazi group listed as a terrorist organization by the Canadian government. The two men, who were not named by the RCMP's Ontario National Security Division, are accused of creating terrorist propaganda and recruiting videos for Autumnwaffen uh, Division a neo-Nazi group founded in the United States in 2013, which has spread internationally. So Global News has court documents, which they say list the accused as Matthew Albert Althorpe of Thorold, Ontario, and Christopher Eric Nippick of East York, Ontario. The RCMP's Ontario Division confirmed the men's names Friday afternoon, it says here. So they're accused of participating in the creation of manifestos for the Terror Terrorgram Collective, a loose association of far-right extremists that organize using encrypted messaging facilitated by the Telegram app. And according to the court documents, this 18-month-long investigation followed the two men from locations in both Quebec and Ontario and covered alleged offenses dating all the way back to April of 2018. It says here the Adam Wathen division was listed as a terrorist group by the Canadian government in early 2021 
And the International Neo-Nazi Group was founded in 2013 in the United States. Since then, it has expanded to the UK, Canada, and Germany, according to the Canadian government. Says here, according to Public Safety Canada, that the group calls for acts of violence against racial, religious, and ethnic groups and informants, police, and bureaucrats to prompt the collapse of society. Yeah, another group that wants to tear it all down. Adam Waffen Division has previously helped training camps. I think it means held training camps, also known as hate camps where its members receive weapons and hand-to-hand combat training. So, these guys definitely on the radar of uh, the Canadian government and RCMP. And arrests made now. You know, when it comes right down to it, you talk to the average Canadian and... uh, the vast majority of people, they find the whole idea of Nazism and fascism pretty appalling overall. At least that kind of ethno-based Nazism and fascism. And I would say that's what Nazism is. It's more of a it's more rooted in bigotry and hatred and has a violent streak running right through it. Economic fascism, that's something else again, which also has, should also be something on our radar, but uh, anyway, that's another discussion. So arrests there. Now, what else do we have for you as we lead into our broader discussion tonight? Well, out in Alberta, they want to, they're looking at, ending their participation in the Canada Pension Plan and setting up a provincially run pension plan for residents of Alberta instead. Last night, Leo drew our attention to this. And the reason I'm really interested in it tonight is because of what Leo drew our attention to. They're going to essentially have a referendum Um, because this is very controversial. I think it is viewed by many as risky because you decouple from the federal government, which has the ability to print money and then put the pensions of everyone in the hands of a provincial plan where the government does not have jurisdiction or the sovereignty, the ability on its own to print currency or Um, govern over or have sovereignty over macroeconomic policy or national or fiscal policy. You just don't have the, the control like the federal government does legally. You just don't. Not to say that you couldn't, you can't have a pension plan through a provincial government. You certainly can, but any provincial or municipal government is very limited in comparison to what a federal government, sovereign federal government can do when it comes to economic policy. 
So they held a news conference today to talk about how the public will start to engage in this process. And it's that referendum that I'm really kind of focused on here right at the moment, because that's going to lead us into our broader discussion tonight on political reform. Because Leo, you know, said last night that this is, in his view, real democracy. And I think a lot of people view it that way. And I've had some, I've, I've been thinking about this very thing a lot over the last, especially the past six months, because this kind of idea, you know, giving people the, the ability to vote directly and not rely on politicians to vote for them has been, a lot of people have been kicking it around for quite a while and people keep kicking it over to me to get my view on it and to get me to talk about it here. And that's what we're going to do tonight uh, for a bit. And uh, this is what they're doing out in Alberta right now on this one issue. Anyway, taking it straight to the people in, in, in the form of a referendum on whether the government there should start up its own provincial pension plan for Alberta residents. status update from the panel that uh, in the continued spirit of transparency, I wanted to share with Albertans uh, immediately. At this point, I'd like to invite Jim up to the mic to go over the panel's observations. And this is Jim Dinning. He's going to tell you who, yeah. what, what his position is. We won't stick with this too long, but he'll explain morning, kind of a little bit about you, this. It's been a long time. Um, as the uh, minister said, my name is Jim Denning. I chair the engagement panel for uh, the proposed uh, Alberta pension plan. And uh, the first round of our engagement has come to a close and I wanted to provide an update as the minister has mentioned. Our panel held uh, five telephone town hall meetings during October and November in the five regions across the province. About 15,000 people participated in each session, either by telephone or online with over 76,000 participants in total. If you'd uh, had the pleasure of listening into any of those, you would have heard 142 mm -hmm. people contribute live during the meetings. And we logged about 3,800 comments and questions uh, throughout the process. It's fair to say that we heard from many Albertans who oppose the idea of exiting the Canada Pension Plan and moving to an Alberta plan. Many of them quite passionate. There is no doubt that this is a sensitive issue for, for a, lot of, a lot of people, but especially those who worry about a vital source of their retirement income. Okay, so we don't need to get too, too deep into the issue itself here tonight. Needless to say, you can understand the risks associated with doing this. And the point being made here is that they're taking this straight to the people. They're going to allow the people to vote on this. But as part of the process, they have to take it to the people and give everybody who wants to participate an opportunity to weigh in on the discussion, to educate people on the pros and the cons and the nuances of the issues. And it's a process, it's a lengthy process, and it's an important issue. So people need to go through the process and become educated themselves and also any stakeholders, that would be you as citizens, anyone who's an Alberta citizen, um, 
and has a pension on the line here. You're a stakeholder. That makes you a stakeholder. And so you have an opportunity then to express your view. So you have hundreds or thousands of people involved in these town hall meetings and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lengthy process. And that's just one issue. And this is a form of direct democracy. This is not that to say that the government out in Alberta is practicing direct democracy in, a, in any pure sense at all. It's still a representative democracy at the provincial level out there, as it is across the board in Canada through our parliamentary systems in, at various levels of government. But this is a form of direct democracy. And on really important issues through history, Canada has done this kind of thing. Whether, especially on, on questions of separatism, whether the country should remain together or should Quebec leave. There, were, there have been referendums, referenda on that. And I know some people would like to see that happen out in Western Canada too. We have Western separatists out there. So. That's how some people want to deal with this stuff through a process where people get to vote on these major issues. But there are pros and there are cons. And I also see that some political action groups, activists, are taking advantage of this kind of, uh, well, they're taking advantage of the political chaos that we're going through right now, the, the weirdness that's out there, the dissatisfaction, the level of, I'd say, even paranoia that uh, is present in our society uh, following the pandemic, the anger, the emotions that are present with, uh, you know, some people. And they're, in some cases, misrepresenting who they really are in order to further political goals. And some of it has me very, very concerned. So we are going to talk about that when we come back on the other side of this. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow, maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching.
Maverick News. The world is watching. That was put together using footage from an old movie, Metropolis. Political messaging in that movie. And today when I listen to people talk about politics, I honestly don't hear anything new. Even people who claim to be innovative. I don't really hear anything new coming from them. The innovation that I'm seeing is coming through the changes in messaging, the, the, the methods, the, the medium, the internet, the way that information is being shared. The technology is changing it. The medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said. But the ideas, they're just being recycled and in some cases disguised. And so I've been hearing a lot of people talk about direct democracy. Direct democracy. People are fed up, they say, with our current system of government, whether you're in the United States or in Canada. People say there's no political solution. We have to, we need radical reform. And somebody even shared a clip tonight with me of, of Joe Rogan saying that Canada, and I can't play the clip because we'll get hit with a copyright strike. All the Rogan clips are copyrighted. And we always get hammered on those. I can't play it for you. But he said that he no longer goes to Canada because Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government is on a slippery slope to communism. And he, he's afraid to even come up to Canada anymore. Yeah, I totally get it, man. So you've got the, the Canadian government Embracing, in Joe Rogan's view, uh, a collective ideology, politically, um, communism. And yeah, I believe that Justin Trudeau embraces the ideals of communism. I know some people have said, oh, he's a fascist. No, he's, in his case, he's a, he's a communist. At heart, I believe. And in practice. And we've heard him say that he has uh, an admiration for China's basic dictatorship. And I don't think there's a whole lot of difference, honestly, between extreme authoritarian communists and fascists who are extremists as well. They're also collectivists, socialists. And I'll illustrate that for you tonight. And I'll show you that there are people out there trying to recycle these ideas, not even within the government, from ex external from the government, who are also trying to <laughs> essentially take it even a step further. And as I've said here before, in my view, people want to tear the system down because it's the system that's still standing in their way of completely destroying the country. Thank God for the Constitution and thank God that we have the system because they are having difficulty doing away with it. If they manage to do away with it, then we're really doomed. And I'm going to show you tonight how at least some people plan to do that in a in sort of a covert undercover uh, 
insidious way. What am I getting at? Direct democracy. Let's start with that. I've had a, a bunch of people just come to me. The system's not working, Rick. It's uh, nothing's good. It's the uniparty. Everybody's it doesn't work and we have to tear it all down and we need there's a new group out there advocating for direct democracy. Yeah, OK. Well, what is direct democracy? Well, that means that. You get to vote on all the issues, whatever the, the issue is, you vote on it. It's not left up to a politician acting on your behalf. In a representative democracy, we elect representatives, a member of parliament, for instance, at the, at the federal level, a member of provincial parliament at, at the provincial level, a councillor at the municipal level from our ward or our riding municipally. If you're in the in the U.S., you know same thing. You have you you elect uh, people to your local city council, to your state governments, and to your federal governments, and you get to vote for a president. We don't get to vote for a president here because we have a parliamentary system. So the prime minister here doesn't have as much power as the, the president does, but it's just a different system. And the party with the most votes, the leader of that party, or the most seats rather, achieved in parliament then the leader of the party with the most seats becomes the prime minister. And then they all represent us, their constituents from their particular writings in the House of Commons. And they're supposed to take your views forward and you have to choose which of the candidates you get to vote. And so they represent us. And it's their job to sit in the House or at their city council meetings and go through all of the laws, all the bylaws that are proposed, all the new legislation at the federal or provincial level, all of these amendments, all the budgets, line by line, page by page. And, uh, and then they represent us and vote on all of these issues. And there are literally thousands of these things that they deal with every year, thousands. And they vote and they vote and they vote and they go to all these committee meetings and they take in all this information and they debate back and forth. And of course, you've got a party system at the federal and provincial levels. And so these politicians as part of parties tend to vote along party lines. And that's why there's a struggle between the parties. And I mean, you all know how it kind of works, right? But in a direct democracy system, you all get to vote. We all get to vote on everything, which means everything that comes up, we get to vote. Now, back in ancient times where this has been tried, you could sort of maybe make it work because you had people kind of come together and if you had like a tribe, right, you could get all the people together and okay, who's in favor, put up your hand, <laughs> right? But when you've got 300 million people or in the case of Canada, 40 million people, you can't just bring everybody together. It's much more complicated. Well, with new technology today, some people say 
direct democracy can work because people can vote online. I'm not so sure. I have I have real concerns about it. I do believe, and I, I'm glad to see that sometimes we go to the people on important issues, and the government lets the people decide through a referendum, like should Quebec leave Canada, or should Alberta stay in the Canada Pension Plan, or develop their own. And you see, d- direct democracy becomes more complicated because democracy, there's more to democracy than simply voting. And some people would say, well, it it, re- it removes corruption from the system because then politicians can't be bought and paid for. Mm, yeah, but there can be a lot of corruption through the general public and there can be a lot of manipulation through the internet and marketing, propaganda. People's minds can be controlled. We're already experiencing that right now. Lobbying. You can have political action groups, special interest groups, injecting money into communities even in order to get people to vote a particular way. It would, I think, just change the dynamics of corruption and push the corruption out into the general public. And it would manifest itself in ways that are more about manipulation even than corruption. And in addition to that, you know, it's uh, it's also dangerous because it really would unleash the potential dangers and the real dangers of the tyranny of the, the mass or the tyranny of the masses or the tyranny of the mob or the tyranny of the majority. Because our systems in Canada and the United States are designed to protect real democracy by protecting smaller, less represented groups like farmers. Farmers are protected in our systems of government and our voting systems because more seats are afforded to farming communities proportionally than would you would get otherwise if it was left up to simply majority rule. For instance, what I'm getting at is you have a lot more population density in a city, in an urban environment, a metropolitan environment. You know, if, if you just go with 50 plus one, 50% plus one, the majority rules on everything, then this people the, the people who live in cities rule over everything. And farmers are not prop, not don't really have a voice because they're always outvoted. But in a parliamentary system, each area, each riding gets a seat in parliament. And then those representatives get to come in. And that prevents people in the cities from essentially supporting and approving through voting legislation or policies that are detrimental to the well-being of farmers, but beneficial to people in cities. People in cities don't care about the livelihood of farmers. They just want cheap food. So the people in the cities, through the process of voting, could ultimately enslave the farmers. 
maybe not intentionally, but through the practice of voting. These are things that have been thought through through not just hundreds, but even thousands of years by philosophers and political scientists through trial and error. And we've come to this point in history and our systems were set up and we're still in something of an experiment in Canada and the United States, but these things have been thought through before. It's like, this is not really new stuff, but people want to throw it out. And the people who want to throw it out, they generally, I think, kind of, well, they just want to bring in alternative political systems, which have already been tried and in some cases shown to be flawed as well. They just want to replace it with something else that we've seen tried before and generally has failed, like communism or even Nazism. Well, let's just take a look. Here's a little video just to explain what direct democracy is. And I'm going to show you who's advocating for that here domestically right now and what's already happened and why it's already not working in the way that people sort of hope that it can work. So here's representative first versus direct democracy, power of the people, democratic theory. I uh, hope it's not too dry for you. It's, it's kind of entertaining. It's a cartoony thing. So it'll entertain you while we learn about this together, this idea of direct democracy. What is it? Social Change presents representative versus direct democracy. Have you ever thought about how even though America is a democracy, citizens don't really vote all that often? In the United States, the average voter can cast a ballot once every two years. The real work of lawmaking happens in Congress, where thousands of votes are taken each session. Democracy is based on ordinary people having a say in their government. But exactly how much say should people have? Keep that question in mind as we learn more about the different types of democracy. The founders of the United States had to decide how much say the people would have in their government. After escaping British rule, they wanted the people to have representation, but they were also concerned that the average citizen wasn't educated enough to vote properly. They decided to balance both interests and choose a system where the people would select officials that would vote for them. However, they didn't necessarily have to design the government this way. The American people could have voted on laws and issues themselves instead of through a spokesperson. These two systems are called a representative democracy and a direct democracy, respectively. A representative democracy is a system of government where citizens elect representatives to vote on laws on their behalf. A direct democracy is one where citizens vote on every issue themselves. The key difference between the two systems is who is voting on laws, elected officials, or the citizens. The first direct democracy was in ancient Greece. In the capital of Athens, all citizens would meet to debate and vote on the issue of the day. In that time, citizen status was restricted to adult white males, but still, political participation was open to everyone that was a citizen. Assembly meetings were where citizens could pass laws and decrees by majority vote. The assembly also partially elected officials as the candidates were randomly selected by lottery. In contrast, representative democracies are based on the Roman system, which relied on leaders from different regions of the empire to be the voice of the people. In Rome, the government had three main parts. Two consuls, the Senate Advisory, made up of the wealthy, and the Citizens' Assembly, which elected the councils. There were a number of citizen and tribal assemblies where ordinary people could discuss issues and laws. 
In this way, the Roman system also had hints of direct democracy, but the citizens didn't actually vote. They could only voice their concerns to electors. Because of this and the influence of the Senate, the voices of the rich outweighed the interests of the poor. Each system of government played to the strengths of its nations. In Greece, the citizens were well educated and power was central to the capital. The Roman Empire was massive and very diverse in terms of language and culture. It would have been impossible to get the opinion of every citizen in a timely manner. The systems developed by each empire reflected the structure of their societies. Today, as countries have larger populations, representative democracies are more common. The United States is a representative democracy as we elect senators and members of Congress to vote for us. The United Kingdom, India, and France are also representative democracies. The only direct democracy is Switzerland, which has popular votes on issues four times each year. Representative democracies like the United States have their pros and cons. On the one hand, the U.S. is very large and less than half of all Americans vote in any given election. This means that it could be difficult to consistently contact the entire nation for votes though technology has certainly made the idea far more possible. The main question is whether or not the public would engage in the process properly. People lead very busy lives, and much of the voting would require research, especially complicated problems dealing with subjects like the economy or foreign relations, where ordinary citizens don't have much experience. However, convenience comes at the price of control. Electing officials to vote for you is riskier than voting for yourself. You never know what other factors are playing a role in their decision. Campaign money, wanting to be re-elected, and personal morals could all cause a divide between what the people want and what an official votes for. Additionally, when one representative speaks for a whole group of people, some minority voices will inevitably be overpowered. In a representative democracy, it is harder for the people to assert their power, so every citizen needs to take voting seriously and make their votes known to their local and state elected officials. Now it's your time to think further. Can you identify ways that society uses both direct and representative democracy outside of the political process? There may be some examples in your school. Or in your life. So that explains what direct democracy is. And in Canada, right now, people are focused on this right here. At least some people are. This is Direct Democracy Party of Canada. And there you go. I haven't spoken to these guys. A few people have directed me to this website. Um, I've read it. It says here, Direct Democracy Party of Canada believes in guiding principles of direct governance by people, not politicians. We believe in semi-annual report cards on elected members, recalls, referendums, and laws made by wide discussions and consent of Canadians. In short, Canadians control their own destiny, not the politicians or elected members. We promote real democracy as it should be. Are they still taking donations here? Let me just check. Uh, yeah, you can. They, they, they want donations. Don't donate yet, though. I'll show you why. Um, Why we need direct democracy in Canada? Well, they're going to say here that it's all corrupt. It says our votes matter. <clears throat> um, it has become obvious that our governments do not represent us and do not follow the will of the people. These past two years have shown that they have crossed the line in trampling our Constitution and our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah, our Constitution and Charter of Rights and Freedoms are meaningless when our government no longer Governments no longer govern according to them. 
Well, actually, they sort of have, <clears throat> actually. That's sort of the problem, which is why we need to change the charter, but that's another thing. Our parliamentary representative democracy political system is set up to give absolute power to our prime minister. That's not true. That's a lie. We do not elect our PM. He is appointed by the governor general on behalf of the queen. That's also a lie. We do elect the prime minister, not directly. The people in his riding elect him. He has to win his riding in order to sit in the House of Commons as a member of parliament. And if he's the leader of the party elected by the members of his party, then he becomes the prime minister. Elected by the membership of the party to be the, the, the leader of the party. And then he has to be elected to office as a member of parliament by the constituents in the riding in which that person runs, he or she. And so that person is elected not just appointed. Once elected, the governor general folks then has to go through the process of, yes, approving that member of parliament as the prime minister, which is a formality that has become a custom through our political system, which ties back to the founding of the country. It says our PM whom we do not elect, yes, we do elect him, appoints the cabinet. We do not elect, it says here, all the most powerful people in our government. Yeah, the prime minister <clears throat> does get to select his cabinet or her cabinet. Who else would do that? You want to elect people to each of the different positions, but you say you just want to vote around them anyway. So I guess it doesn't matter. It says our house of commons is supposed to represent us, the people, but we have failed. The house of commons represents the interests of the ruling party rather than the interests of the people of Canada. That's also a lie. This applies to most institutions, including the judiciary as judges are appointed by the parties in power. Well, The system is not set up to simply represent the ruling party. That's a lie. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You see, the, the party that's elected, especially if you're in a minority government situation, doesn't have absolute power. The opposition parties, which have other views on issues, as you're seeing in the House tonight, during this filibuster, the conservatives have a completely different view on the carbon tax, and they're holding the liberals' feet to the fire on this through this giant filibuster, which started yesterday. It's ongoing today. It's going to continue on into tomorrow because they oppose it. So they're doing everything in their power, everything they can, to stop it. And why is that happening? Because they're also members of parliament. They also get to vote. They get to vote on behalf of their constituents from each of their ridings and along their party lines. The liberals get to vote along their party lines. The only reason the liberals are there right now is because the NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is also a far left wing socialist party in Canada, they prop up the liberals. They're Justin Trudeau has a minority government. That means that his party alone does not actually have absolute power. They can't just do whatever they want. 
when they go to pass legislation, they need to have a majority of votes. In order to get that majority of votes right now in the minority government situation, they need the support of some of the conservative MPs and and or some of the members of parliament who represent the Bloc Québécois and or the New Democrats. So the New Democrats have been getting a lot of what they want and they have they're not even in power, but they still have a lot of sway as because they're saying to the liberals We'll support you on this if you give us some of that. And so there's a negotiation uh, going on all the time between those two parties. And when they combine forces, they both kind of get a lot of what they want. As a result, the Canadian government in the last two terms has swung very far left because it's the NDP kind of wagon as the tail wagon the liberal dog. So there's an example of how a party that isn't in power still has power and major influence over what happens with the government. But the government itself, the ruling the ruling party, isn't really ruling in a dictatorial way at all because they need to get these other parties to support them. Now, that being said, The system is also set up so that the parties within it are Her Majesty's or His Majesty's loyal opposition. That's what the conservatives are. That means they're not there to destroy the entire system. They're there to promote and work toward whatever political objectives or whatever economic goals that they they see. If they're more conservative, then they're there to 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 work toward that. But they're not there to dis, like destroy and take over the whole governmental system, the whole system of government. They're all there working cooperatively together so that the system, the constitution, is preserved from one government to another, to another, to another, so that you get good government, peace, and order, and a peaceful transition of power between elections, and the people get to vote. That's what democracy is. Doesn't mean Justin Trudeau's a dictator, and even though people are filling people's heads full of these ideas that he's never going to leave office, yes, he is, because there's going to be an election. Now, the problem is, that people who are convinced that he's never going to leave office are convinced that he's not going to leave because we lose, we lost the election. So people are frustrated. So in the minds of people who lost, the system isn't working. That's always the case. People lose. But it doesn't mean you're always going to lose. You're going to lose forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It means that you have to work toward winning the elections. And if the other, that's the kind of the point that I'm making here too. You can sit here and advocate for direct democracy all you want, but you're still going to lose. And I can, I can illustrate that for you right now. If you look at what the polling says on the issue of, say, the pandemic, OK, now, if you're like me, I didn't like the lockdowns, So I was against the lockdowns. I was against man mask mandates. I'm against mandatory vaccinations. I don't like any of that stuff. I found what happened to be appalling. All right. 
But folks, during the pandemic, we were in the minority. People like you and I, if you're agreeing with me on that. And that's the unfortunate reality. We lost. And there was a whole election fought on that. And I didn't like the way that the election was conducted. I didn't like what Justin Trudeau did. But even if you look at, you know, recent polling on this issue, Canadians feel less safe now than pre-COVID, according to a poll. That was back in April of this year. More Canadians trusting governments as COVID wanes. Um, Canadian attitudes towards voting during the COVID-19 um, poll has decreased since the, before the pandemic. Uh, just all these different polls. And you know what it's showing is that Canadians generally are still, the majority of people are supportive of what the government did to us. I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's the truth. So even if you have direct democracy, people are going to vote the way they vote. In fact, it might even be worse. It's going to swing. It's still going to swing left. The reason I say that is because people on the conservative side tend to not get as engaged in politics and they tend to not organize as well. People on the left, however, tend to be much more activist oriented and they tend to stick together, collectivize, get organized and go out and vote in blocks. And then you look at the polling. The most recent poll shows that Three out of five people in Canada are supportive of what the government did during the pandemic, even now. Three out of five. Blows my mind. You know, but people are still swinging back. What is going to happen, though, in the next election, I'm pretty sure, is one, Trudeau maybe is going to resign because his popularity has tanked. He's under pressure from his own party to leave. Okay. To step down as leader. There are other people getting positioned in order to become the next leader of the Liberal Party. The best thing, I think, for the country would be is actually if he stayed to run on the next election, because I think he'll lose because he's that unpopular. And so people won't vote Liberal if he's there. If they get a new leader, they've got a shot because of the polling that I'm showing you right now. Direct democracy is not going to fix that. The problem with the whole direct democracy movement here in Canada is that it's already falling apart. Indeed, what I have found out is that, and this is one of the reasons I haven't spoken to these folks. Um, I was thinking of asking them to come on to talk about this tonight, but even though they're still accepting donations, I guess, through their website, the party is no more. Um, here's Elections Canada. So back in May of this year, the party was deregistered. The chief electoral officer of Canada, Stephanie Perot, has informed the party leader of the Direct Democracy Party of Canada that the party is deregistered effective May 31st, 2023. The party is deregistered for not complying with the requirement to provide at least 250 membership declarations for the 2022 triennial exercise in accordance with the requirements set out in the Canada Elections Act. The party may no longer issue tax receipts for contributions received after the effective date of its deregistration and is no longer entitled to any of the benefits of a registered party under the act, including the use of the broadcasting time. 
because every party is entitled to television time under Canadian law. A notice of the party's deregistration will be published in the Canadian Gazette, in the Canada Gazette, rather. So if you donate to them and you're expecting a tax receipt, you ain't going to get it. But I don't see anything on their website at this point indicating that they've been deregistered. Now, they can go back through the process and start all over again and recreate the party. But that whole movement right now is back to square one. So I would not recommend personally, you do what you want, but I would say just what I said about donations to a party that is defunct. Um, and the idea of direct democracy, I just find it very problematic. What are you going to do? You're going to wake up every day? Are you going to spend your time watching, look, I don't know, what, getting online and participating in community debates on every single issue? You got to go to work. That's what these politicians are paid to do. They're there to go through budgets line by line by line. You know, even just a municipal budget, right? Municipal budget. Like, here's a notepad. Like, it, it, it's their binders. This thick. A municipal budget. And counselors have to sit there and go through them line by line, line by line, line, line. And they sit through meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. <clears throat> How much is going toward paying for this bridge? How much is going toward paying for the potholes on that road? <clears throat> what about, uh, you know, the... The signs out in front of the, the, the school over there. What about the sewage treatment plant? <clears throat> Excuse me. All these little issues. You're going to vote on every single little issue? How are we going to do that? If you have direct democracy, it's just, it's not practical. You still need your politicians there to do their job and go through the budget line by line by line by line. And do with all, you know, they're also there. If, you, if you're a municipal councilor, I guarantee you, you get phone calls from, People in your riding all the time about your neighbors, their neighbors barking dog, complaining. They want a bylaw passed to strengthen the anti-barking bylaw. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. People do not have time, nor are they able. It's just not possible for people to deal with all of these issues. So we hire someone as a politician to go to work. And keep tabs on all of these issues at the municipal, provincial, federal levels or state levels as well. That's what we have, representative democracy. They represent us. Now, you want to get involved? Yeah, absolutely get involved. Get involved in a political party. Influence the party platforms on various issues. You can make a big difference that way. You want to get involved in municipal government? Yeah, go down there. Sit in on some of these meetings. You, as a delegation, can influence the votes. It's not just up to the municipal councillors. It's not just up to the politicians when they vote to just do whatever they want. The public applies pressure during the, each of these processes. And then the stakeholders for individual issues then get to come forward and present their arguments during public sessions, during debates on these things. And I know that we don't always like, I don't like the way the country's going right now, but here's the, the silver lining in all of that. It's, it can change. On a dime. 
all you got to do is get rid of these guys. And I know it's frustrating when we can't seem to, to get any traction, can't make, you can't gain any ground. That's because the other side has been so active politically for so long and organized on so many levels. They've been out there winning the hearts and the minds and you might even say brainwashing people through propaganda, whatever techniques they're using, they've got the votes. They've got the political organization. They get the people out. They get the busloads of people out there to go vote on voting day. They have the political machine. They have the whole political ideology. They have critical race theory. They have identity politics embedded within our educational institutions, and we've let it happen. That's also politics. That's also democracy. That's not cheating. That's the way it's done. You want to win? You got to do the same thing. You're that pissed off about it? You're going to have to fight back that way. Otherwise, what are you going to do? The alternative to that, you know, if you're not going to vote, well, I don't even want to talk about that. If you're that frustrated, then you and I are not on the same page at all. That's a whole other discussion. But you get back to the to the voting and stuff like that. Well, I mean, it's a frustrating thing, right? But we lost. Well, they cheated, did they? The polls don't suggest that. Sometimes the polls are cooked. I'll give you that. Depends on the methodology and the way they ask questions and so on. But no, no, we lost. Because there are a lot of people who are kind of... <laughs> Sorry, we lost because there are crazy people out there or people are just, you know, radicalized. And there are a lot of reasons for that, cultural, social, foreign influence, whatever. That's what we need to focus on more than anything is, you know, purging the corruption, which is really from external forces. It's not just that the, it's not that the system is screwed. It's that people are have been infiltrating the system. I've been trying to kind of. Tell everybody that. Follow the money, you know, get change, more transparency on the finances of all of these politicians. Where did that guy get all that money? We better keep tabs on that and keep that guy accountable for that. And why is it that the prime minister who makes about $380,000 a year uh, is, you know, has so much money in the bank? These are serious things, man. But not to say that the system is perfect, but direct democracy, uh, it, ain't, it ain't really going to change the outcome. In fact, I think in a lot of ways it would make things a whole lot worse because it would actually give more power to people on the left or political activist groups, special interest groups who get organized. It would leave it open to a lot more corruption because everything then would be done online and these things could be hacked. Paper ballots, as we use in Canada right now, I think is still honestly the safest way to go. And you just don't have time. I don't have time to sit here and, and look at every single issue in depth and then vote on it. Uh, you'd have to sit and vote like every day in order to keep the business of government 
functioning. In addition to that, you're also neutering your prime minister and your cabinet on the foreign affairs portfolios that they manage. Every time they go out into the international arena, you've neutered them when it comes time to negotiate anything. How can they negotiate anything? They have no authority. They don't have a mandate on anything. They can't guarantee an agreement on anything with any other world leader at that point. You can't go and sit down at a bargaining table with Xi Jinping and hammer out a new trade deal with China and say, we promise that we will do this. No, all that all that the prime minister at that point can do, okay, is go back and say, you know what? Yeah, we'll, uh, I'd like to do this, but we'll have to take it to the people and we'll see if they vote for it or not. And we'll get back to you. <laughs> and Xi Jinping's going to sit there and say, uh, well, what do I need you for then? We'll just uh, take out a bunch of ads <laughs> and get the people to vote whatever way we want. Which is happening anyway. There's all kinds of crazy online stuff going on, as you know. But that's also the issue of free speech. But that's also what tells me that democracy is still alive and well or at least whimpering or suffering a slow, painful death or whatever you want, but it's still alive because we've got chaos in the media. We've got such a wide range of views online, even, even views that in my mind, um, and I think there's clear evidence of this, you know, opinions and, 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 and media messaging coming from foreign powers, and I'm like, yep, that's free speech. It's still there. I'll take it. But you know, in other countries in the past and even today, that free speech isn't really there. Countries that appear to be a lot more stable are only stable or may, may appear to be more stable simply because they crush free speech while pretending to embrace it. You think about just about any other country on the other side of this equation. And then you ask yourself, how come that leader is never criticized by their people? How come you don't see people out in the streets in China protesting en masse the way that you see it here? Yeah, we see it from time to time. There was the, the white paper protest, right? There was that. There was Tiananmen Square. Where's that guy? The guy stood in front of the tank today. Yeah. You ain't going to find him around anymore. But you see people in China coming out and saying, Xi Jinping is an idiot. No. But I sit here night after night after night, and I say, Justin Trudeau is the worst prime minister in Canadian history, and I don't go to jail. Now, I know you're going to say, but we've got political prisoners. Yeah, maybe so, because we are on that. Slippery slope toward authoritarianism in the many respects we've arrived. But I'm still sitting here saying Justin Trudeau is the worst prime minister in Canadian history, and I'm still not in jail because I'm doing it within the system. You get outside that system. You, you start trying to affect change in a way that's outside the system. Now you're trying to tear the system down. Now you are an existential threat, not just to the liberals, 
but to the government and the system of government itself to Canada or to the United States. Now you've crossed the line. Now maybe, maybe that's why some people might end up in this glamour. And maybe Justin Trudeau <clears throat> acting outside the bounds of what would be re a reasonable use of his powers has, has targeted people. And I would say that's, that's absolutely the case. Was his use of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy proper? I would say no. I said that Canada died that day. Indeed, I still stand by that. He should not have done that. That was an overreach of power, an abuse of power, an abuse of a very powerful piece of legislation. Doesn't mean he can do it all the time, even though some people are trying to scare you into thinking that he can. But, you know... <clears throat> And, and we need to keep this stuff in check as well because we've seen this happen in history before. We've seen it with some communist governments. We've seen it with Hitler. These dictators, Stalin and Hitler, both talked about democracy they even used democracy in order to exert authoritarianism, to bring in authoritarianism. Hitler went to jail. While in jail, he wrote Mein Kampf. But while in jail, he realized that his approach to overthrowing the government of the day was not wise and wouldn't work so when he came when he got out of jail he changed his tactics instead he used democracy against itself i've said this on this program democracy is the system's greatest strength but it's also the system's achilles heel or its greatest weakness because Democracy allows political opponents to come into the system and try to tear it down from within. That's what Hitler did. I'm going to show you that there are people out there tonight that I think are really, in some cases, trying to do a similar kind of thing today to us right now. So in 1941, Hitler gave a speech this is just an example, at the Berlin Sports Palace. This was January 30th, 1941, where he spoke to some degree about democracy. I'm going to read you, and this is one of the, one of the excerpts from that speech. I'll read you some little snippets from what he had to say about this so that we can be on alert, okay? and be aware of where this kind of thing can lead and quickly. It says here, this isn't on the caption on the screen, but it says, I'll just bring this down for a moment. Okay. Get rid of that. 
you know, and and nothing against the people with the democracy, direct democracy party of Canada. They can do whatever they want. Um, you know, I just personally disagree with it, and I got nothing personal against the people. I don't even know them. Um, I just want to say I'm not trying to, you know, pick a fight with them or anything. They can come on. We can have a, a discussion about it if they'd like. Might be a good idea. I just don't. Uh, I just don't see the value in it. In in the word direct democracy. So Hitler started that speech by saying, my journey, German countrymen, men and women, changes of government have occurred frequently in history and in the history of our people. It is certain, however, that never was a change of government attended with such far reaching results as that eight years ago. At that time, the situation of the Reich was desperate. We were called upon to take over the leadership of the nation at a moment when it did not seem to develop towards a great rise. We were given power in circumstances of the greatest conceivable pressure, the pressure of the knowledge that by itself everything was lost, and that in the eyes of the noblest minds, this represented a last attempt, while in the eyes of evil wishers, it should condemn the National Socialist Movement to final failure. He was a collectivist. He was a socialist, national socialist, but a socialist. He's on the left, dude. Um, unless the German nation could be saved by a miracle, the situation was bound to end in disaster. For during a period of 15 years, events had moved downwards without respite. On the other hand, the situation was only the result of the world war, of the outcome of the world war, of our own internal political, moral, and military collapse. For these reasons, it is particularly important on a day like this to think back to the course of that entire national misfortune. He goes on, talks about the war, the economic problems, and he says here, the 300 years earlier, England had gradually built her empire not perhaps through the free will or the or the unanimous demonstrations of those affected. Let me bring this up so you can see what it is that I'm reading. This was his speech in 1941. And he goes on here and says... <clears throat> He, talk, he talks about democracy, and I know from other speeches that he also says that um, in his mind, democracy didn't work because it always becomes diluted or comes down to the lowest common denominator, where at best you're getting a mediocre government. He, in his mind, wanted the elite to rule. He wanted, and said so in various speeches, that he wanted the best of the best to be at the, the head of government. And you couldn't rely on democracy to give you that. In fact, it would be the, it's, it always diluted down the other way. So at best you kind of reached the mean, the medium level of efficiency in any system. So he says here, thus the national socialist world of thought arose which has overcome individualism. It's overcome individualism, he said. Which to me is horrifying because 
I believe in individual rights and freedoms. He's a collectivist, or was. But not by cutting, it says, has overcome individualism, but not by cutting down individual capacities or individual initiative, only by asserting that the common interest is superior to individual liberty. So collectivism trumps individual rights. In other words, you know, you don't really have rights. You don't have individual liberty because everything goes back to the collective. He's a socialist. He's a collectivist. Fascist. A Nazi. Only by asserting that the common interest is superior to individual liberty which comes down to your rights, folks, and the initiative of the individual. This common interest, common, this common interest regulates and orders, if necessary, curtails, but also commands, he said. So you adopt that ideology, that idea, and you are compelled to act on it. It commands what the government does. It trumps everything. It trumps your rights. You don't have rights in a system like that. It's the tyranny of the mob. He goes on. Thus, we started a struggle against everyone in those days. And these are just excerpts from that whole speech. Thus, we started a struggle against everyone in those days, against the individualist, people like myself, as well as against the humanitarians. Because that kind of thinking also led to eugenics, right? It's like what's in the best interests of the collective well, is it in the best interests? Is it in the best interests of efficiency to have someone with um, maybe mental health issues live? Or are they just a burden on society? Or what if you believe that there are certain races that are inferior to yours? Is that the most efficient thing to have in your society? Should you be allowing those useless eaters to survive? So he was a collectivist. Always thinking of the collective and the most efficient way forward and applying ethnicity and eugenics to that ideology over time. And in this struggle, we slowly conquered the German nation during 14 years. This is important to keep in mind as well. Keep in mind that he's going to say here that they started small and it didn't take long for them to get big. The 1,000 members which the movement counted at the end of its first year of life a number which was to increase steadily these followers, but we Germans who had come from other movements. So they started with a thousand and over time it grew into, they grew into the ruling party. Now, as I said, for a while they tried to overthrow the government, but then they re he realized coming out of jail and a lot of violence and losing that he needed to work within the system, which is also dangerous. He used democracy against democracy. So he got in there. And then once he got elected, he did away with democracy. He got elected and then found ways through a national emergency and the Reichstag fire and all of that history to just do away with democracy once he was in power and then made himself the Fuhrer, the supreme ruler. Because he's deceptive, as collectivists often are. Oh, yeah, well, vote for me. We're working within the system. He says here, 
had a little bit of body. Oh, sorry, that's a text thing. Laura Mipsum. Um, he says here, this means that the so-called National Socialist Revolution has defeated democracy. Collectivism defeated democracy. He's doing away with it. Within democracy, by democracy. National, so look at that. National Socialist Revolution has defeated democracy within democracy by democracy. We acquired power legally. They did. And today, too, I am facing you here on a mandate given to me by the German nation, a mandate more comprehensive than that which any one of the so-called democratic statesmen possesses today. They did away with democracy. They became very efficient. What about Stalin? Stalin as well. I mean, he he also spoke highly of democracy, but only a certain kind of democracy. He uh, delivered a speech on this issue as well. But like a lot of communists, in my experience, he was a liar, basically. <laughs> And politicians in general, right? He lied, deceived, um, conflated, twisted words. Let me see. Is this the uh, this we're going about? Yeah. Okay. Here's his speech. One of one of the ones that I just decided to refer to tonight, just to show you. And we're dealing with some similar kinds of things going on in Canada right now. So speech delivered by Comrade Jay Stalin at a meeting of voters of the Stalin electoral area in Moscow in 1937. He goes on and on and on. Um, this was sort of an impromptu speech that he gave on that day. And he, in here, talks about democracy and democracy in other countries, like in the United States, but was very critical of democracies in other countries, saying that the only true democracy was in his country because capitalism corrupts democracy. So in, in the United States, in Canada, in other countries, they didn't mention Canada specifically, but did mention the United States. Saying that we don't have, really have democracy because capitalism pollutes it. My words, paraphrasing. And then he actually makes reference to some things here that people right now in our country are calling for, like uh, recall and things of that nature. So he says, the electors, the people must demand that their deputies should remain equal to their tasks, that in their work they should not sink to the level of political Philistines, that in their posts they should remain political figures of the Lenin type, that as public figures they should be as clear and definite as Lenin was that they should be fearless in battle and merciless toward the enemies of the people as Lenin, that they should be free from all panic, from all semblance of panic. When things begin to get complicated and some dangers, what's he getting at here is, yeah, you, you want your politicians to support communism and the ideals of Lenin, 
because what it boiled down to is what you ended up with essentially was a one party system in the former Soviet Union. And then here he makes reference to further comrades. I would like to give you some advice, the advice of a candidate on his electors. If you take capitalist countries, you will find that peculiar, I would say, rather strange relations exist there between deputies and voters, politicians. As long as the elections are in progress, the deputies flirt with the electors, fawn on them, swear fidelity, and make heaps of promises of every kind. It would appear that the deputies are completely dependent on the electors. As soon as the elections are over and the candidates have become deputies, relations undergo a radical change. Instead of the deputies being dependent on the electors, they become entirely independent. For four or five years, that is, until the next elections, the deputy feels quite free, independent of the people of his electors. And a lot of that is actually kind of true. But what he's also talking about here is that, you know, in the former Soviet Union, he asserted that communism was the only true form of democracy because pe it people were free of capitalist influences and property, which means you have no property rights, which means you really don't have any rights and you have a single system. So yeah, you're, fr you're free to vote any way you want to vote as long as you vote for communism. And as long as you vote for collectivism and you don't really have any rights as an individual. It's all about the collective. You don't get to own anything. It's about the collective all the time. So as long as everybody's supporting communism, you can vote for communism. And that's really what it came down to. And anybody that really opposed him politically, well, you might want to take out a good life insurance policy. That's the truth. Yeah, they had elections. And, but while he was pointing his finger at uh, the West, saying that it was all corrupt and the politicians don't really do the bidding of the voters, his own system was, to say the least, less than democratic. It was very autocratic, which is why philosophers like Noam Chomsky have quotes like this. Even Stalin, Noam Chomsky said, even Stalin proclaimed his love for democracy. We do not learn about the nature of systems of power by listening to their rhetoric. In other words, Noam was as well aware that Stalin always talked a good game about democracy, but at the end, in the end, it wasn't about the democratic process or voting rights or the rights of people at all. Certainly not about freedom. And really, that's what needs to form the basis of any democratic system is freedom, which brings me to another area of focus and another group that right now is advocating for a power shift. I don't really know these folks. I'm aware of them. The power shift Canada people have been drawing my attention to this group and I've been to their website a number of times and they're welcome to come on here if they would like to and discuss this further, but I've noticed that uh, just recently they changed their name. Yeah, uh, didn't I've never really liked their message. This is just me personally. Maybe you love them. You're free to have your own opinion. Me personally, 
Um, this whole thing sets off big alarm bells for me. They've changed their name from the power shift to the CPU, the Canadian People's Union. <clears throat> I think this is dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Personally. They are trying to get people to sign a convention of consent. It's not a petition. It is a contract. They don't present it to you as a contract. They present it to you as a political solution to a political problem. The people here are promoting collectivism. I would go so far to say as, even though they're not using the word, to me, this smacks of communism. Veiled communism. Or at best, very far left socialism. Presented to you as a form of collective bargaining through something called a people's union, a Canadian people's union, as though they're going to advocate for you for the Canadian people, for a new form of government, by getting 50% plus one is all they say they need in order to affect a massive political change in this country. And they do have quite a few people who have signed this convention of consent. I would never sign that. Why would I, as an individual, with my individual rights and freedoms, sign a convention of consent handing my authority over to them, signing over my rights as an individual to negotiate or advocate for myself as an individual because I have rights through the Constitution that goes beyond the Constitution up to the guy in the sky. Why would I sign a contract with these guys to have them then act on my behalf through a convention of consent, signing over my rights, signing away my rights? That's what you're doing if you sign their convention of consent. You're saying, these guys now bargain for me. They negotiate for me. They represent me. I no longer represent myself. I give them my consent to affect a new convention to essentially shift the power to what they call freedom. And we've used, they've seen communists repeatedly through history use the word freedom, twist it around in order to affect a change or a political shift toward collectivism, which they would then say frees the people. But in reality, what they're asking you to do is sign a piece of paper giving them the authority to act on your behalf, collective bargaining or collective representation. You're not going to have any rights. You sign that. And if they come to power, what they're saying here through this website is that they need 50% plus one represented by people in seven provinces in order to effectively take power in this country. 
that force a change where they're saying, either uniting the citizens and indigenous people of Canada as one national collective head of state with final decision-making authority within the law of our land, our constitution, wherein we become the collective crown of Canada, which acts as the core or the most basic building block of true democracy within parliament. So they say they want to follow the law, but you see, they want to change the constitution. So they become, they, they get, it's, they affect power. They take power by saying that they all they need is 50% plus one of the population to sign their convention of consent. And then they can come in and effectively basically take, take over the government. And of course, they want your money and, you know, whatever. Okay, every political group does. So what's the mission? <clears throat> the great Canadian legal, civil, and political rights power shift revolution. Oh, yeah, a revolution. Here we go. What kind of revolution? The power shift to freedom. Yeah, what kind of freedom? Oh, they say it's true freedom. I'm going to tell you <clears throat> that, no, you will not have any rights. Under Joseph Stalin, you didn't have any rights either. You didn't have any property rights. What they want you to do is they want you to sign this convention of consent or consent of convention. So they're going to correct the past. It says here, that means rewrite history, which is what we've been going through. And all of that has been coming from the political left, changing the history in our schools, tearing down our statues, making everybody ashamed of colonialism, blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff, anti-Canadian, anti-Canadian, anti-American. And then power shifting, that's where they get you to sign away your rights so that they can represent you as a collective. And the same, the mindset here, I'm sure, is that it's like collective bargaining through a union. And that's the way they're selling it to people. So that if you join, if you go to work at Ford, or at Stellantis or General Motors or a Honda, not so much a Honda plant, but at an auto plant or any factory where they have a union, you automatically then have to become a part of the union because the union has collectivized. And the way that the laws are set up in this country already, you then are compelled to join the union. You don't have a right as an individual to bargain with management for your wages or your benefits. It's done collectively now on behalf of everyone. And yeah, unions have been pretty effective in getting higher wages and better benefits for their workers because they hold the withdrawal of labor as a, a bargaining chip, as a powerful tool to hold. Basically, they're, they're holding their labor ransom in order to get what they want, which is more money and more benefits and more from the employer. Well, they're trying to sell this same sort of idea. It's a union, so we're going to act collectively. But the problem with this is that this results in, honestly, absolute power being given to these guys. If they get 50% plus one, they say they can then form the government. 
and then represent everyone collectively. And then we're supposed to all be in power. But that's not true. They will have the power because you've signed your rights away to them as individuals. And now they represent everyone. So they rule over you. They get to vote on everything. They get to make all the decisions on behalf of the collective. Always with the benefit of the collective in mind, never the individual. As Dennis Prager says, the bigger the state, the smaller the citizen. So you as an individual, you end up with, honestly, no rights. You want property rights? Good luck. You want the right to free speech? Good luck. It ain't going to happen. I mean, unless they decide to give it to you. But as soon as they decide not to, then you don't have it. Because if they decide that it's not in the best interests of the collective, then screw you and your freedom. What do you think has been going on in this country for the past three years? Screw you and your freedom. You must wear a mask. You must get the jab. You must do this. You must do that because it's in the best interest of the, of the, of the collective, of your community. You, it's your, up to you. It's your responsibility to protect your neighbor and protect everyone. So you have to stay home even if you're not sick. That's the mentality. It flips everything upside down. You don't have any rights as an individual anymore. Now, they're going to sell it to you as though they're upset with what the government has done. But in the end, that's really what you're doing by signing any con consent convention of consent. You're, you're giving them the right to represent you. You don't have the right anymore. That's why if you go to work at Ford on the assembly line, you don't get you might be a super genius, but you can't negotiate a higher wage for yourself. Unless you're outside the union collective, but if you're just on the assembly line, you get what everybody else gets, which has worked out very well in that context, but not in the context of government, because if you are dealing with the government, they then have absolute power. Nobody's going to tell them what to do, especially if they're concerned about who sits in, you know, in, in the judge's chair. They're going to appoint. And then what's the third phase of this quiet democratic revolution yeah as long as you vote for them and who oh, you, you don't really get to vote anymore because you signed away your rights they represent you so they'll vote for you now they might say that you get to vote this and vote that but in the end you've essentially given them all your power now maybe i'm not reading everything exactly right about what they want because i haven't spoken to them i'm just taking this information from their their website so i'll give them some benefit of the doubt here but i've been watching them for a while and this whole thing just scares the living bejesus out of me this is not what it appears to be these people are deceptive they're communists in my view this is a form of communism and is being presented to people in a deceptive way Sounds very enticing. Very appealing, especially when we've gone through three years of lockdowns and isolation and people are angry and people, I think, at this point are willing to just latch on to or try anything different. The thing is, though, though, folks, this 
isn't so much different as it's just a lot more of everything that we have been abused with. Be careful of people who use the same words but mean something entirely different. Freedom can mean two entirely different things, and yet it's the complete opposite of what you think it means. Democracy. And the mouth coming out of the mouth of one person, it means freedom. Coming out of the mouth of somebody else, like Joseph Stalin, it means nothing except the opposite, being used to deceive. Coming from these people, I'm very skeptical. Correcting the past, the responsibility of correcting the Canadian Constitution and respecting international laws and universal rights, universal rights, not individual rights, universal rights, which Canada has signed falls upon the UK and the Canadian parliaments. In addition, the courts must uphold both the constitution and the international laws under the rule of law principles, principles that protect the people from governments. Okay. I'm all for that. They talk about the convoy, of course, which disarms you. And then they say here on July 30th, 2022 in Ottawa, the CPU and its supporters stood up and activated our collective political and civil rights, not individual rights and freedom, not individual liberty, collective political rights, which was a first step in initiating a dialogue with the UK and the Canadian governments. Prior to 2022, the CPU had also written to Minister of Justice David Lametti and various other officials hoping to shed light on the neglected state of democracy in Canada. Power shifting. They want to decouple disengage from the monarchy. That's also a hallmark of communism, honestly, folks. Now, the United States did it, but they did it on the other side in the name of liberty. The collectivists, communists also have a longstanding um, opposition to the British monarchy, and they want to tear that down. I get it, but you know, you don't need a revolution for that. You can just ask. In fact, Britain has been, has a long history now of saying, okay, sure, you want to, you just, you don't want to be part of the the, uh, the monarchy anymore? Yeah, you don't have to be part of the Commonwealth. You can just disengage. And yet, even the countries that disengage, decouple, they still end up being part of the Commonwealth. It's mostly symbolic regardless of what people tell you. And uh, and it's also another layer of protection against our, our, our countries becoming even further left and descending down that slippery slope toward more communism, which Joe Rogan is warning us about as well. And if you look at uh, Jamaica, they've listened. Go back and li listen to what, the leader of Jamaica had to say during that meeting with Trudeau, and you'll see that that government has gone far, far left as well. Embracing the ideas of anti-colonialism and all they did in order to decouple from the monarchy was say, can we just decouple? And they said, sure. You don't need to get violent about it or anything like that. It's not really that difficult. Um, 
And this whole idea that they're going to empower First Nations, indigenous peoples by creating this collective government, um, I would be extremely careful about all of that if I were any First Nations leader, because it's the treaties that are in place with the existing government, including the monarchy, that assure the sovereignty of these First Nations within the nation, the, the nation state of Canada, nations within a nation. And it's all because of the treaties that are in place agreements, but you tear it all down and you come in with something new and uh, you're starting from scratch. And I'm not so sure that as the power struggle emerges and something new is built, that First Nations will be respected in the way that people are hoping or even being promised, especially if it's all about the collective good. It might not be about the good of the minority, like First Nations. Do you hear what I'm saying? And if uh, people's rights are circumvented, the quiet democratic revolution in Canada, what would happen after we win? Okay. So this isn't about putting pressure on the government to make change within government, having the government of the day make changes. This is about becoming the government. The collective people would oversee the governance of their country. That's communism. 365 days a year, Canada could finally use democratic types Benefiting its people, such as policy democracy, community democracy, direct democracy. There it is again. Participatory democracy, rather than the current parliamentary democracy, which is a democracy for parliamentarians only. Not true. Canadians and Indigenous peoples would need to take individual responsibility to move from apathetic voters to becoming informed and involved. We've already discussed the pitfalls in that and why it's not entirely practical to expect people to vote on every damn issue. The politicians of today holding all the power without responsibility would shift to working for the people in their respective constituency. Party priorities, as Professor Lyon put, in, it put it in his book, would be replaced by priorities that citizens and their representatives would develop together. Politicians would not be the sole decision makers, as in partocracy, the decisions would be in the hands of communities, making their needs known, and from there, policy would be determined. Finally, the true transparency of decisions and subsequent actions would be a historical moment for Canada and its citizens reflecting a nation that is informed and involved in its decision-making processes. Would they? Would people suddenly become more engaged just because these guys took power? Really? We have less than 40% of the people coming out to vote right now in elections in a free and democratic society and a parliamentary system. But now suddenly you think that people are going to become so engaged that they're just going to start, you know, participating in every vote every other day or every day, waking up and spending their time just watching everything going on online on the, uh, the parliamentary channel. Well, it's not the parliamentary channel anymore. It's now the uh, Canadian People's Union channel where you have only one party the union party and you get to vote as long as what it's in the collective best interest, but not, maybe not in yours. So you get to vote, but vote for what and how, how does all that really work? It's collectivism. Anyway,
direct democracy. A lot of these things seem very appealing, but I would say be careful that you about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Be careful. You really want to tear it all down? I'll submit to you tonight that if we were to do that, we would sure miss it when it's gone. Because I miss it already. Because I feel like it's already gone. Still there. Feel like we can get it back. They make it better. I don't want to tear it all down. I want it back. I want all this craziness to stop somehow. I know it won't, but we need to get our hands around that and control some of this craziness. Minimize it. Figure it out. We need our country. I love my country. I don't want to destroy my country. I just see a lot of people trying to tear it all down and bring in something that I don't think you, I'm not seeing anything that appeals to me. I'm seeing a lot of big government, a lot of government control. I see a lot of erosion, further erosion of rights. I don't see anybody protecting my rights as an individual in any of these scenarios. I'm not up for it, man. Not me. Is that what's that make me a libertarian, conservative? Conservative libertarian? I don't know. Classical liberal? Somebody in the middle? It's interesting, you know, these world dictators, world figures who have employed fascism, Nazism, communism. Suddenly you read their speeches and they all seem to think they were in the middle at the time, but clearly not. We're on the precipice here. People are being deceived to the point where People are so desperate, so angry, so upset. They're ready to just sign anything. Not it. They're telling you too. Oh, it's free. It's not a petition. They say it's not a petition, but it's free. All you have to do is sign. Here's a solution. Oh, all I've signed. Be careful what you sign. Didn't anybody ever tell you to read very carefully and understand any contract before you read it? Be really careful. My experience with people or collectivists is that they generally speaking, especially if they're actual communists, they don't generally come out and tell you that they're communists. If they're a Nazi, they generally don't come right out initially and tell you that they're a Nazi because it just doesn't fly in Canada. Either one of those things. No, they reel you in. They kind of hook you and then they reel you in. And they radicalize you and they, they fill your head full of promises that honestly they have no intention of keeping in that way. They just want the power. That's what, that's my view on this. I don't even want to look in the chat. <laughs> don't even want to look in the chat. And so many people trying to just disrupt and destroy and we're going to get into more of that on the other side when we come back. Don't go away. Stay with me because <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna show you some some things that are gonna make you wonder what's real, what isn't, and who's deceiving us.
Maverick News. The world is watching. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become, become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarmingly, some media In an ocean of lies a century deep, the truth awaits. Choose not the red pill. Choose not the blue pill. For both are an illusion. Discover the power of M. The power of individuality. We are mavericks. We are the way to the light. Fear not the storm. Join our quest for truth. Truth will set you free. Maverick News. The world is watching. I'm back, and do you know who that guy is? That's Christopher Reeve. That is Superman. There was a guy who fought for truth, justice in the American way. And he, Christopher Reeve, turns out was not a man of steel. He suffered a serious horseback riding accident, ended up paralyzed, as we all know, and apparently passed away. And yet, as all this weirdness has been unfolding, especially over the last few years, there's some people out there who believe Christopher Reeve is still alive. So just even in the last few days, because of that house explosion, the shootings, I've had people saying, Christopher Reeve's still alive. So I thought, I started thinking about this, you know. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know. Don't know if I believe that. There's a picture of Christopher Reeve. Okay. There's one. And then there's also this guy. People are saying this guy is actually Christopher Reeve. Today. That's Christopher Reeve today, they say. I don't know what his name is. Not sure where all this is exactly coming from yet. But people keep sending me this. There's Christopher Reeve before his accident. There's this guy. Is that Christopher Reeve? And I think he has a social media following even, this, this guy here of some kind. I don't know. 
So then I got to thinking, you know, being the investigative journalist that I am, I have access to technology like a lot of people do and new technology. And I thought, if that's really Christopher Reeve, there's a way we can determine that. Facial recognition. So that let's let's try this out tonight together. And we'll see if Christopher Reeve and some of these other people who are supposed to be still alive, who have been told are dead, are actually alive or dead. Or at least if the people claim that there are doubles or whatever, then using some of this facial recognition technology, let's put it to the test. So I've already done this one. And this is what I found out. This is Christopher Reeve. This is the photo that people keep sending to me. And there are videos of this guy out there as well, apparently. But is this Christopher Reeve? I used facial recognition technology, compared the two photos to see if it is indeed the same person. And this is what the result was. Face similarity ratio, 52%. The two photos, it's not the same person. Nice try. So according to facial recognition technology, which is highly accurate, apparently within 99, 98, 99%. That's Christopher Reeve. And this dude is not Christopher Reeve. Believe it or not. There are others as well. Okay. So Justin Trudeau, we keep hearing that Justin Trudeau has doubles. I was told this past week by someone that he has been executed at Gitmo after standing trial in front of some sort of international tribunal. And he's now dead. And that it's not the real Justin Trudeau. <clears throat> and that it hasn't been Justin Trudeau for a long time in power. So these are two of the photos that people keep sending me. <clears throat> Excuse me again, saying that these guys, that this is this is a there's a this is the old Trudeau and this is the new Trudeau, and there's more than one. So this is the old Trudeau. And this is the that's the new one and that's the old one. Anyway, these are the two photos. So these are the ones that people keep sending me. So that well, let's put that one to the test. Let's do that together, shall we? <clears throat> so here's a website, an online service, facial recognition technology. I can punch this stuff in. Got to find it here. I'll bring it up and we'll do this together. Hmm. 
Where did it go? So many tabs open. Here it is. All right, let's bring this up. This is where we can go, and we'll we'll punch these pictures in to this system. And we'll see if this is Justin Trudeau in both of these photos, if it's the same person. So first, the one with the facial hair. And then we'll add the other one here, which is newer. And then we compare. <clears throat> Page expired because it sat too long. So we have to refresh. Sorry, folks. Not letting me refresh. I'll have to go over here. My apologies. There we go. Okay. So I have to put I have to bring the tab up over here instead. Here we go again. There we go. Now I bring it back up on the screen and one more time. So here's the one with the facial hair going in and here's the one with the, without the facial hair. And we compare, it is the same person. That's the result on that. So at least based on that information, and those are dated considerable distance apart in terms of years, same person. All right, so let's try another dude. Remove this. How about RFK Jr.? That's another one that people keep saying, coming to me saying, he's still alive. That's RFK Jr. Or sorry, JFK Jr. I'm sorry. John F. Kennedy Jr., who we know was reported killed in a plane crash in the 90s. And there's this guy out there that people are saying is John F. Kennedy Jr. today. His name is Fusca. What's his full name? Vince Fusca. It says, I'm just looking online here. It says he's uh, within the so-called QAnon movement. And a lot of people think that he is John F. Kennedy Jr. All right, let's find out. Let's use facial recognition technology to see if we get a match. Back we go. We'll punch in those two photographs. First, Mr. Fusca, or maybe it is John F. Kennedy Jr. That one goes in. And then here's John F. Kennedy Jr. And compare. Face similarity ratio, only 34%. The two photos, not the same person. 
Okay. Anybody else? How about Joe Biden? I keep hearing there are multiple, multiple Bidens and that uh, the real Joe Biden is actually dead. So I don't know. Uh, but uh, these are two photos that, again, were sent to me as proof. So there's this one. And this one was also sent to me. These two. And I have to confess that, uh, you know, there was that once one news conference he gave in particular where he seemed to his eye movements and things seemed very unnatural. He seemed different. Um, his voice seemed different. I have to admit, I don't know about that one. But anyway, I don't have a photograph of that. These are the ones that were sent. So we'll, we'll do it with these. And we'll see where this goes. Uh, okay, I got to bring that back up. <clears throat> All right. So Biden. Okay, let me just make sure I've got the right thing here. We got uh, those two. All right. Stay with me. There's that Biden and here's that Biden. And we'll do the comparison now. Face similarity, 90%. It is the same person. <clears throat> Not to say that that particular test is definitive. I'd say the JFK Jr. definitely shows that that other guy is not him. So we know at least that much. Um, we know that those two photos of Trudeau, that's definitely the same person. And those were years apart from my estimation. And there were quite a few years separating those two photos of Biden as well. Not sure exactly how many. Probably as far back as like uh, 2012 or something like that and today. So... We know that the current Biden is, at least the one that we seem to be seeing, is the same one. And we definitely know that that other guy is not Christopher Reeve, Superman. So take that for what it's worth. Those are the photos that have been sent to me lately. And... Uh, I'm inclined to go with the technology and say, yeah, I think that uh, that's probably accurate. Is it the definitive last word on any of this? Surely not. Now, I'm sure that people will send me even more photos and say, look at this one and that one. and Look at this other guy. And that's fair. And we can do more of this if you want. As we head down the road of weirdness. <laughs> Oh, my. It is a weird time, isn't it? Super lies. Somebody's going to a whole lot of trouble to deceive us. I mean, a whole lot of trouble. Like, who is this guy? And we'll look at the little curly cue thing on his hair. And... uh 
Why are people going to such lengths to make some people believe that this guy is actually this guy? When now we know that's not the case at all. What is the motivation? Is it just money? Or is it something more insidious? There's a whole lot of lying going on and a whole lot of deception. Makes me worry. A lot. Don't like it. Okay. Stay with me. I'll be right back. The New World Order. Government Overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. And just before we get into these uh, these final stories of the night, uh, that is a reminder that you can support the show by donating at maverickdonations.com, or you can also support us and free speech and this brand of journalism by donating at freedomreporters.com. You can also support us through the Rumble Rants on Rumble. Please like, share, subscribe, hit the notification bell on YouTube, share, share, share all over Facebook and elsewhere. And we will be uploading to all the other platforms that we're not live streaming to, but we do have the, uh, the archive material there for anybody that, uh, you know, misses an episode or whatever on CloudHub and BitChute and YouTube and Brighteon and others. We're on uh, the podcast circuit, Apple, whatever, and the iTunes thing, and the blah, 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 and the, I don't even know all the places we go. We're also on a television network, eh? Eh, a Canadian. Um, Freedom TV or something. We have a bunch of uh, freedom-based programs on there, and that's on Roku, apparently. So we're being carried over there, too. So you can pick us up that way anyway uh yeah so what else do we going to talk about tonight we've got um this situation which actually goes back a, a ways but it it um was drawn to my attention today the erickson company which deals with, you know, cell phones, cell phone towers, 5G technology. They they got hammered, eh? They're Swedish-based, but they got hit with by the Department of Justice in the U.S. for paying money to ISIS and terrorist groups in the Middle East. They also tried to conceal the probe into their activities in these countries and basically what they were doing here's uh 
one of many stories now done on this, and we're telling you about it here tonight because it kind of plays into the uh, SNC Lavalin thing in an indirect way, not direct, but indirect. Erickson fined 207 million for concealing internal probing to bribes paid to ISIS. <laughs> so, what this company was doing, from what I, I gather from the information released, is they were paying off terrorists in the Middle East who were basically blocking access to areas where they were going in to do work to set up cell phone towers and install other communications infrastructure. And the company didn't want to give up the work, so they just paid off the, the terrorists. Tons of money, millions and millions of dollars in, in, in total, in totality. And the, the company also knew that this was risky the people doing the work that they were sending in there were in danger. And in some cases, the people ended up being kidnapped. And the company went ahead and did this stuff anyway. And of course, the money going into these terrorist groups, of course, used for terrorist activities. Why would they do it? Well, I would suggest to you that because there is no rule of law, they don't have peace, order, and good government there. They have chaos. They have, to some degree, well, no, they just have authoritarianism, terrorism. And if these companies want to do the work, they've got to pay the fee. They've got to pay the toll. And so who's really in charge in, say, Iraq, where it's a lot of this stuff was going on? Not the Iraqi government, it was the terrorists. So Erickson said, okay, well, we want to, we have contracts, we're going to get this work done. Okay, we'll pay you off. And then in some cases, the terrorists are saying, well, you pay us off. And then you know, those border guards over there, we'll make sure you don't even have to see them. So that's what was going on. And you remember the SNC-Lavalin scandal? I think a lot of people are aware that there was a scandal in Canada involving SNC-Lavalin, a Canadian company, and Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould and the legal problems that came as a result of that. And that all connected to international contracts as well. And that was all about Libya. And, you know, this is why we need to be aware that uh, our leaders, they have to play by two sets of rules. Puts everybody in a pretty tough spot. At home, nobody's above the law, right? So... They have to play by the rule of law, bound by our constitution. They, whether you're the prime minister or the president of the United States, you need to make sure you don't break the law 
at home. But when you're out dealing with foreign affairs in other countries, or even if you're the head of a big company or you're out in another country, you kind of have to, you have some rules from back home that you still have to follow, but you are also in an international environment. And the, the, the laws of whatever country you're in really apply. And there's international laws that also apply. And in, in international law, it's really kind of the law of the jungle. Even though the United Nations, NATO, they're trying to affect a new rules-based order, which is to say that they're trying to put the rule of law in place internationally so that everybody knows what the rules are that everybody has to play by. But the truth of the matter is in the international arena, the guy with the most guns wins. The guy with the most guns rules. So you get into another country where you've got terrorist groups. There is no rules-based international order. It's their way or the highway. And if you want to do business, you pay the ransom. But if you're paying the ransom, you're kind of breaking the rules back home because you're not supposed to be supporting a terrorist group. You're not supposed to be engaging in any kind of business activity with them. But if you want to do the business over there, you kind of have to. Otherwise, you can't do it. And if you want your people protected, you don't want the terrorist groups to kill your workers or kidnap them, hold them for ransom, then you got to pay the toll. Or you got to pay the bribes because these other countries are very corrupt. We talk about corruption at home. And that's all true. You got a lot of corruption going on in other countries. Remember Richard Nixon? You know, he said, it's not a crime when the president does it. Because you get into that position and your judgment gets clouded because you're making decisions day in, day out. Maybe I'll just go bomb that country and <clears throat> kill all those people who are a nuisance. I'm going to take out that terrorist group, send in, the, uh, send in the fighter jets and a few missiles and that'll solve the problem. But you can't do that at home. But I think when you sit in that chair... And you have that power. It's easy to lose perspective. And easy to make mistakes and let the power corrupt you. Even as you think you're doing the right thing. So in the case of Trudeau, I mean, he's like, I don't know. We don't know exactly where the money trail that leads. But, you know, he was saying too many Canadian jobs on the line. But we know that there was money changing hands. We know that there were kind of like parties and schmoozing with these Libyan officials. It was corruption. It was wrong. Illegal. But because it was done in the international market, I think that, you know, these politicians, they lose sight of, of what's right and wrong. And they're Oh, well, you know, the, the end justifies the means. Such was the case with Ericsson. Big company, they wanted to make that money. There's tons of money on the table. Tons of money at stake. Just pay them off. Let's keep on going. 
not worrying about the long-term consequences of that, not thinking that that money is then going to be turned around and used against us by these terrorist groups, maybe down the road. And it's illegal on the home front, but maybe not over there. Oh, nobody will ever find out, but we did find out. And it does matter. But I think we need to be mindful, you know, that that's the reality out there. When you get out into an area of, you know, relationships internationally between countries or even terrorist groups, it's all about power. It's about power brokering. It's who has the most power. Nation states, they bargain in power. You need to be powerful so that nobody messes with you. So you have influence. That's why countries pursue the development and acquisition of nuclear weapons. It makes them powerful. It gives them a seat at that nuclear club house table to negotiate to get better things for their country makes them powerful you don't have the nukes you don't have weapons of mass destruction you don't get a seat at that table you get told what to do and if you do get them and you're told to give them up you might just be in peril yourself if you're a leader that story just brought all of that to mind, especially as we're sitting here talking about direct democracy and rule of law and individual rights and freedoms versus collectivism. You get out beyond the borders of Canada and the United States and it's the law of the jungle. That's the truth. Nobody's coming to save you out there, man. There are no rights except the rights that you have through your power. And that's ultimately what protects us as well from tyrannical authoritarians who seek to destroy what we have and come here and take it all away from us. Some of them might try to do it using kinetic warfare, the power of the gun, the power of the bomb, but these days, I'm not so sure. It's becoming very apparent that there are people out there trying to take it away from us using new technology, new techniques, the internet, social media, psyops, mind-twisting weirdness designed to, I think, even weaponize mental illness through people who are most vulnerable. Man. Is Christopher Reeve alive or dead? I think he is deceased. Somebody doesn't want you to believe that. Is it related to everything else we spoke about tonight? Yeah, I think so.
I think that is related to exploding cars and exploding houses. And I think it's related to the social media posts that accompany all of that online, which is related to all of the propaganda and information warfare that comes out of now Israel, from Hamas, from Ukraine, from the Russians, China. It's all connected, man. I miss the before times. And I love my country. Don't let it slip away, folks. It's still there. Let's grab a hold of it. Bring it back. Make it better. Because if we don't, we're going to miss it when it's gone for good. Love all you guys. We're going to make it. The journey continues tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Catch you then on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.